We went with Mr. Biden to the Detroit Auto Show last Wednesday, but the newly crowded convention center brought a different question to mind. Mr. President, first Detroit Auto Show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. Support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So quickly, before we get started, I wanted to make a second announcement for folks who may have missed the big news that we talked about at the beginning of last week's main feed episode. Artie, Phil, and I are so thrilled to be able to tell you all finally that Abby Cardis and Jules Gil-Peterson have both officially joined the panel as co-hosts. And last week's main feed episode where Artie, Jules, and I talked about the ADA and gender dysphoria was Jules's first official episode as co-host, and Abby's is today. So Abby, welcome to the death panel officially. We're so excited to have you on the team. Hell yeah. What's up? <laughs> this is like, this is like stop making sense. We're just like bringing on each of the musicians. <laughs> I want. But it will start out with Artie and a boombox. <laughs> Anyways, Jules is in California right now. She's very busy being the uh, inaugural public scholar in residence at the USC Consortium for Gender, Sexuality, Race, and Public Culture. So send her some love and welcome her and Abby Yay. to the panel. Um, and check out our episode from last week if you have not yet. But, um, you know, not all episodes are going to be like the full panel, all five of us. Um, in a way, the best way to describe this change is that you should expect to hear more regularly from Jules and Abby. You know, we're spreading out our talents. Same old death panel, more Abby, more Jules. Anyway, let's get right into the topic for the day, shall we? Today, we're checking in on the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. Again, I've lost track of how many times there have been op-eds that have declared the pandemic over. I mean, every month there are a whole batch of new ones from the same crowd. Nearly 60,000 people have died since May in the United States. 30,000 people remain hospitalized with covid you know, there's no way to know or even begin to measure all of the lost wages, economic immiseration, suffering and sickness that people are still experiencing as a result of COVID every day. But despite that, this week, um, the COVID is over discourse has been accelerating at quite a terrifying pace. And we've seen some drastic pushes in what we've been calling for a long time on the show the sociological end of the pandemic, which is this idea that the pandemic is over simply because we say it is, regardless of how many people are still getting sick and dying. And actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. But perhaps most significantly, this weekend, U.S. President Joe Biden himself weighed in and helped to uh, sort of construct this reality, declaring the end of the pandemic while wandering around the Detroit auto show and being <laughs> interviewed by 60 Minutes. <laughs> Biden said in the interview, uh, quote, we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. He then kind of like gestures around the convention and is like, if you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everyone's in good shape. See, yeah, it's over. Did this like perfectly tautological situation where you point to like, look at this. Look at this condition that I myself have set up that all of the organs of state that I manage have set up uh, where no one is masking. See, don't you see, see right in front of you? Yeah, so I love that I he was like everyone seems okay. Yeah. <laughs> seems good. That seems know. healthy. Yeah. And so today, you know, we're going to vibe check the end of the pandemic. We'll talk about what happened with Biden's statement, the response to it. We'll talk through some of these arguments and their justifications and, you know, also how related any of this is to reality. And maybe we should start with the response to it uh, from the White House, sort of what people yeah. said when he was called out for making this statement and whether or not it's sort of there's a lot of debate over whether or not it's a gaffe or some <laughs> sort of like 12 dimensional chest or a soft launch of, of some kind of, uh, you know, 
overcoming strategy. Right. And and, and I, I find the, the reaction in the White House, there's a Politico piece um, on this to be, you know, I, the, the initial response is apparently one of, as the article described it, like eye rolling yeah. uh, at people's uh, shock at this statement. And it's like, well, of course, he didn't uh, mean that. Look at all of the other things that we're doing. But I think there's, you know, other perspectives within the White House that they do recognize that this is from the perspective of multiple things the, the administration is claiming it's trying to do. One, ring more funding out of Congress, as we talked about, um, I think, like last week. Um, and two, the, you know, flagging booster campaign that's like flatlining, that having a president go on television and say, you know, the pandemic is over is not just like a question about like, well, what did he mean rhetorically? And he was sort of just speaking out of turn. But it it builds into this much larger thing is that you know, the administration in a variety of ways, not just Biden, but, you know, Ashish Jha, other people in the administration are giving ammunition to the people who are right now the administration's opponents saying, for example, that if it's not really a pandemic, then you don't need a public health emergency. And if it's not a pandemic, then you can't use uh, the public health emergency to justify, uh, you know, canceling student, uh, a lot of student debt. Or if it's not really a pandemic, then we don't need to be working as hard on boosters. Or if it's not a pandemic, we don't actually need more money for testing. So, you know, I think this idea that like uh, hemming and hawing over like the technicalities of what he said, what he could have meant, it's just it. It isn't actually that much out of line with the rhetorical own goals, you know, that the White House has made time and time again over the last few months. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a really quick move by a lot of people. I saw, for instance, like J.G. Allen and Nate Silver both, for instance, moved to kind of like try to shield the White House by saying, like, oh, well, you know. People are taking this so seriously. But, you know, Biden was saying, uh, quote unquote, the pandemic is over, meaning like that's how people uh, think of it and are acting of it. That's actually the White House's sort of defense. They mm. when they sort of gave um, further comment or whatever to The Washington Post, they tried to clarify the statement saying like he's referring to public sentiment, et cetera, completely ignoring, obviously, that it is regardless of whether this was planned or not or whether you could call it a gaffe like the people calling it a gaffe. I would say like it's only a gaffe if they seem embarrassed by it right like Mm -hmm. or if they try to walk it back they're not doing any of that some of them have said like that it's basically that he's right or whatever um so like some people from within the white house have said that he's right but like for example nate silver and jg allen tried to do this thing of like oh you're taking his comment out of context he said like oh but COVID is still a problem as you know b read the quote for example he he, there's the important context of him saying like COVID is still the problem but the problem is not like the context of the immediate quote. The problem is the context of what they've obviously been doing. I think the the thing that this reveals, whether again, whether it was planned or not, whatever, um, I don't think that they're, you know, kind of I don't think that they've shown the wherewithal or the intelligence really to like plan an event such as this. And even if you look at the detail in the Politico article, for example, that Phil is mentioning, where they say essentially that like. CBS sent them the transcript of this and their aides just completely failed to flag this and send it to their COVID team. So it caught all these people unaware. Like that's a really specific thing that you wouldn't make up unless you're trying to make yourself look stupid. (laughs) So I do believe that it was unplanned essentially, but I do also believe that it obviously betrays how they've been talking about it. Because if you like talking about internally, because if you just look at, I mean, this is what we've been saying really for, for months now in all of their actions, uh, in their statements, in their policy and everything like that, they have all but gone up to the point of saying the pandemic is over. They've been communicating essentially the pandemic is over. We are done dealing with this. You are on your own and basically stopping short of actually saying it because they understood, I think that to say something like that in public so early would be politically disastrous for them. And now, so the difference is essentially like now he said it, he like actually said it out loud. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The administration's kind of position here is a fundamentally incoherent one. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to watch the defenders be like, oh, okay, well, people, you know, people in the Democratic Party, you need to understand that that he's that he's right, that, you know, he's right. And in context, he's right. And it's reflecting all this stuff that's really real. But then, you know, leaders in Congress, like you need to have a different understanding, which is that he's wrong and the public health emergency like needs to continue. And we still should, you know, and I don't think the Democrats, they're, they don't seem to be making 
you know, a really heroic effort to overcome this political opposition and secure more funding or whatever. But I just find like the rhetorical discipline at the level of like Twitter hacks to be kind of interesting because it really doesn't, you know, people really don't know. Talking heads really don't know how to respond to this. Like, I I think kind of fundamental incoherence of, of what Biden is saying and what the white house is signaling. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I think it's uh, on the one hand, you have to ask the question, you know, where, where does that incoherence emerge from? And, and it's, it's obvious that there are people in the administration who do understand the public health implications of not having additional funding of not having a robust booster campaign and so on. And they actually do see statements like this as, as a huge problem. But at the same time, this, the public health, whatever perspective has always abraded with the other sort of uh, political priorities of the administration, the economic priorities of the administration. And the incoherence is not just like incoherence because you know, we don't exact, we're not like good at talking. We're like not good <laughs> at rhetoric. Like you can, yeah, you, you can basically assume like sloppy or whatever. Yeah. 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 You can basically assume that like, that's the one thing that people are, if they're good at anything, it's that, that they're actually better at. So when you see some sort of policy gestalt, that's like this incoherent, it tells you about a real rupture yep. uh, within the administration over what the priorities should be. And so I, I think that, it's illustrative that that when pundits are sort of reacting, it's like, well, of course, you know, either he was right or he didn't mean that or some combination of the two. The consequence is like not taking into consideration the way that it's isn't it really interesting? You know, typically elected officials, when they're pushing for a big package in Congress, they, they tend to not put themselves in a rhetorical situation <laughs> that almost guarantees that they will lose. Right. And. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. And so what can you conclude from that is that there's now a push, you know, within the administration to uh, either decide that they've already lost and to uh, reconstruct their rhetorical uh, kind of options uh, in a way that's that basically obviates the need to have a legislative success to say, in fact, that we've already won. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that's where, like, it's frustrating me to see a lot of the debate about this sort of redound to be like, oh, is this planned? Is this a slip? Is this a mistake? Is this a gaffe? I don't think that it's like planned or an accident, right? This is actually more reflective of a general attitude of many people in the administration, despite the fact that their declared priorities is that we need COVID funding from Congress, right? And that Congress is not giving us the funding. And what we've been calling out for months and months is that, you know, these two things as they coexist um, work against each other, right? Right. And and, and it's not, it's not that, you know, but the Biden administration is, um, you know, trying to pull a fast one on it. It's, it's that their, their position is fundamentally incoherent because it's insincere. Right. Well, Mm -hmm. and because they think, I think that like the pandemic or the pandemic phase or whatever is over, that things are fundamentally back to normal. Also that it is, you know, also, obviously, they've been marshalling towards that to make sure that they hit that goal by mm-hmm. the midterms. But irrespective of that, they, regardless of that having clearly been the goal for the whole year, practically, I think, for the entire Biden administration, if you just look at like everything that we talked about, for instance, in uh, last year, but also in uh, our, our year end recap of that year, COVID year two, right? Like they've been moving towards this moment this entire time that has been the goal. And so they really believe, I think. They actually believe that they've gotten there. And I think actually Mm -hmm. it's not. So, for example, a lot of people have tried to take this to task and sort of like call bullshit on on Biden. Like a lot of people who have been critical of this libs, for example, have said like, no, sir, it's it's a pandemic still, obviously, et cetera. And that's true. But the problem is that just I think merely pointing to and saying it is still a pandemic, you know, how could Biden be so, you know, quote unquote, irresponsible as to say it's not a pandemic anymore? Well, I think that presumes that simply being able to identify and call it like still a pandemic necessitates or militates like automatically suggests the continuation of pandemic funding automatically suggests the continuation of the administration taking it seriously, which, as we've seen this whole time, has obviously not been the case, whether they call it a pandemic or not. And so I think that actually the part of the reason that this happens is because 
I don't think that they think the COVID funding and the fact of it being called a pandemic and an emergency anymore are actually politically are actually necessarily politically linked. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it, you know, taking like a, I guess a, a sort of extreme cynical point of view, maybe is how you could say this. But I think it's actually more like when you're taking a, a, a look at at actually honestly how power works in this circumstance. They are trying to manage a lot of different things at once. And one of the things that the Biden administration obviously has as a priority is to make sure that their administration's goals and messaging and whatever is positively received. They want like re-election. They want the Democratic Party to look good. They want people to like them. They want, <laughs> you know, good press. Right. So part of that is what's driving their position on COVID because they don't want to seem like the killjoy. Right. They don't want to be the people in the room being like the bummer saying like, y'all, we still need to mask because they've decided that's not cool and that they're going to go with that position, <laughs> right? But could you imagine if they were taking that position, which they have been loudly criticized for, and they weren't at least giving lip service for saying we need more funding in Congress? Yeah. People would never leave them alone. I mean, uh, God knows if there even is a strategy. I mean, this is just, it's just <laughs> there's, there's a lot, there, right, there's, there's a level of chaos and it's also, you truly can't have it uh, both ways. And the pre it, the preference here seems uh, clear. I don't think that there's a lot of interest in actually like winning this legislative fight on, you know, on, on the amount of funding that they initially requested. And, you know, it's, I think at the end of the day, and, and as she's just said, it, we talked about it, I think last week, it, the, the gambit is, well, when things get bad, Congress will change its tune. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like I mean, all right, you know, that is a that is the single most cynical approach to, you know, public health. I mean, that that should be a textbook example, you know, in like I don't know, I I don't know what public health school is, Abby. Like these are like a 101 don't do this. Uh <laughs> well, they, they uh, have I guess I guess not. No, uh, probably really not. It's a cynical approach to <laughs> politics in the first place. I mean, and and to the and I think in general to the entire idea of what the state is and and is for like who it is. like I mean it really I guess shows who the state is for really obviously mm -hmm. because you know 500 or more people can be dying every day and still you know as long as it's not sort of the uh you know among the people who are actively in front of joe biden's face at the detroit fucking auto show or something then whatever things look normal all quiet whatever it's all fine and i think that that's why for example you know ashish jaw saying something like uh as phil just mentioned like oh you know when things get bad again then Congress will have to act, I think, is doing the same rhetorical move that we've seen time and time again in this pandemic, which is especially, I think, thrown to the the sort of like um, I, I feel like the Democratic Party speaks about new variants or whatever, as in the same way that they used to talk about, like demographic uh, destiny or something like yes. that, where it's yeah. like, um, well, if a new variant comes across that makes it an emergency again, because of course we couldn't possibly consider 500 or more people dying a day an emergency still because uh, just, I guess enough time has elapsed and we've produced enough sociological changes. We've, we've messaged so hard, we've changed policy so hard and we've, we've really collectively at a government and media and social level, you know, talked ourselves out of action or any sense of urgency at all whatsoever to the point that this extended congressional congressional uh, funding lack can just be played out, you know, in perpetuity, practically right without without it being a site of enormous political upheaval and it, it, an extreme problem for the state. Right. We've like normalized this so hard that despite all of that, despite the fact that that these things still are an emergency, we sort of imagine we'd like kick to the future this imagination that, oh, well, if things get worse, then Congress will fund it. If a variant emerges that is worse, then maybe we'll consider, you know, recommending masking again. Uh, much less or even not even recommended masking again at this point it would be like consider walking back some of our blatantly anti-mask rhetoric right right and we know that's well, not I, true because they've never done that before 
You know, right. look at right. how they treated Omicron. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, Absolutely. that's my, that's my point. Ways yeah, of, exactly. There are different ways of learning from crisis and there are different lessons that one can draw. I think it's quite obvious that the kind of learning that's done here is like, it is possible, like maybe one of the last things that the executive branch can effectively do, because apparently, you know, it, it has some, it's it had some legislative successes, but that those are the very con- more contingent, but like, it seems like one of the things the executive branch can do is even if it doesn't like shape public opinion directly, or it can't lead public opinion in a way that is completely, a- you know, adverse uh, to, you know, what, whatever baseline exists, um, that it can shape the way that uh, crises are, are covered, talked about, and uh, sort of socially received such that, you know, new deltas in the crisis emerge as anomalies uh, or blips rather than uh, as as the consequence. I mean, the ultimate thing to avoid here for them is a uh, publicly available causal story in which <laughs> they are at fault yep. for anything. And that, in fact, what exists in the world are just is just a series of inexplicable anomalies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's ultimately what 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 the goal is. I mean, I that's not that's not conspiratorial. I mean, that is that's no. textbook. There's like a foundational political science article on causal stories that is like that really documents. And in, 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 in a way, it's sort of become a cookbook. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to Phil's point is that I think a really big part of normalization, this rhetorical production of the end of the pandemic, something that underlies this that is never actually stated is that the catastrophe is is well underway and was not only allowed, but, you know, fairly encouraged to happen. And, you know, it, it certainly is true. Like we we have the tools. That's absolutely <laughs> true. You know, we have treatments that we didn't have at the beginning of the pandemic. We have vaccines that we didn't have at the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of people have been exposed to COVID. All of this stuff has happened, but I I see this kind of triumphalist narrative, you know, people showing the progressively smaller waves of death heading into this summer as evidence that, you know, somehow the, the strategy has kind of worked and, you know, we have the tools and Death is, you know, the 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 mortality impacts are are now so blunted because everyone's been exposed to COVID, and isn't that great? <laughs> everyone's but met met COVID. <laughs> everyone's met COVID, but I think as as someone, I wish I could credit them on Twitter aptly pointed out with one of these arguments and one of these little figures, like you can only die once, um, <laughs> and the fact is that a lot of people died. And this triumphalist narrative about how much kind of more resilient we are to severe outcomes from COVID, you know, I mean, it sounds, it's so fucked up to even say, but it really relies on the deaths of uh, over a million people in under two years. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, people who, I don't know, this is, again, this is like really not an argument that everyone who is, who was going to die of COVID has, has died already. But I feel like that is kind of the unspoken Mm -hmm. assumption that goes into a lot of this kind of normalization process. And I mean, I think that's utterly ghoulish in the first place. Yeah. It's a wrong assumption, which is a wrong assumption. And it also, I mean, I get, you know, the, the 400, 500 people a day that are still, that are still dying of COVID. Do they, do they not matter? I guess not. I mean, that, that is what is telegraphed by this. Those people's deaths, they don't matter. It's not worth doing anything to prevent them. You know, they're not even really happening. They're doing the (laughs) the absolute most to hide any information about what's going on from the general public. So I don't know. That's the only point that I would add. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of these arguments that are being made using uh, the infection fatality rate. And I, I, I think that like this consideration really underpins a lot of that uh, discourse as well. Absolutely. And, and one thing to just build on what you're saying, Abby, um, I was talking to a friend this week who gave me permission to like share this anecdote I'm about to just like explain. But, you know, the, the idea that um, that this is just like a, a, a disagreement about whether or not 500 deaths a day constitutes an emergency or not is so fundamentally insulting to the people who are experiencing COVID as a catastrophe still. Yeah. I have a friend who uh, has two children. 
their partner caught COVID three times. The third time that they caught COVID, they got a pulmonary embolism and they died. <gasps> that person now is a single parent, works in person in a uh, workplace that has no mask policy. They are now not only the sole provider for their children, they're the sole caregiver if one of their children gets sick. Their family members do not live in the U.S. They are the, you know, the only one there if they get sick and die. Like, what happens to their kids? If they don't go to work to try and avoid getting sick and dying, what happens to their kids? Like, and to say fundamentally that right now we're just having a little rhetorical disagreement about what constitutes endemicity and what constitutes an emergency is so fundamentally insulting to the people whose lives are catastrophically impacted continuously, who have never had a moment of feeling safe for like months or years at this point. Mm -hmm. I think that that is such important context, especially for just thinking about how sort of deep into hypernormalization or this hypernormalization process we are really. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Abby mentioned some of the arguments that we wanted to get into, for example, about sort of what's happening sort of in the in the broader social and uh, the sort of like media sphere around um, how we talk about COVID. And I think part of this is I mean, the, this is kind of the really essential element, like all of these things, all of these narratives kind of require that you completely jettison any actual material reality of things like the story that you just mentioned, B, and that each each one of these people, each one of these people in that, you know, one in 500 a day uh, figure, which very easily could go up as we go further into the fall um, with absolutely no, like way, way fewer, almost no mitigation or protections in place at all, even compared to last fall or the spring, even um, like none of these people exist in a vacuum. And all of this rhetoric relies on categorically sort of refusing them personhood and refusing the idea that these people didn't either just have, you know, as is so common to hear stated, like something else going on with them or their health or like, oh, they're not actually a COVID death. They broke their fucking arm and then they ended up in the hospital and they just happened to test positive for COVID. Like, we're so deep into this hypernormalization process that it's really important, I think, to take a moment to just sort of take stock of even just some of the ridiculous places that these arguments have gone. I mean, I want to actually highlight one thing in particular that I think is a extremely gross reaction actually directly to the uh, Biden statement that the pandemic is over, which is a uh, Ross Barkin piece in New York magazine where, I don't know, he's basically doing like his best Lena Wen impersonation, <laughs> yeah. except for mm -hmm. actually somehow, even though Lena Wen published on like the same day an almost identically titled article saying like Biden is right to call the <laughs> pandemic over somehow uh, Ross Barkins ended up being worse. But anyway, I digress. I just want to I just want to highlight some of the assumptions and assertions that are made um, that have become so common that just completely dismiss everyone who is dying from COVID and completely dismiss this as a problem. Um, and again, and not just dying, this. suffering through and Needless of course. infection, sickness, inflammation, long COVID, lost work, lost right. wages, precarity. I say, right. I say dying because specifically that's the focus of that's right. that's the the um, focus of the statements that uh, Barkin makes here. But so he writes Biden's comment angered a number of public health professionals and COVID hawks who are furious mitigation tactics against the virus haven't been pursued into the fall of 2022. Recall also the last time we mentioned Barkin on the show, he wrote an article for The Atlantic that was called, like, why are we not even talking about a timeline for undoing COVID restrictions? Anyway, uh, the argument, he continues, the argument against Biden is compelling. Technically, of course, the pandemic is not over. More than 400 people still die daily of COVID in the U.S. The virus has not in any way vanished. And Biden's responsibilities haven't ended. The federal government must take a much more active role in the latest booster campaign and ensure the elderly and immunocompromised receive as quickly as possible updated shots. America's death toll has been correlated almost exclusively 
to senior citizens and those with pre-existing conditions. Um, well, younger, healthier people can certainly keep getting vaccinated, but oh the money and time my, oh must be expended God. on those who need the most protection. This Shut is the fuck up. Shut textbook the fuck up. eugenics shit. And not to just throw that word around, but this is Sorry literally to shout into the microphone. But oh this my is God. literally a fantasy of intrinsically healthy and intrinsically unhealthy people that assumes that all the people who are dying have something else wrong with them and that COVID is not in itself disabling, debilitating and deadly. And I'm sorry, for, that is an, healthy I think, I think vaccinated people that's an anti-vax statement. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that you are uh, also forgetting that one of the criteria for uh, hiring at uh, New York Magazine under the new program is not having any understanding of but for causation. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's so frustrating, right? Because it gets reduced to this like individual intrinsic characteristic. Like, okay, we've got people dying, right? But that's not a society level problem. That's an intrinsic quality of a group of people off somewhere else, right? And that all we have to do now is focus resources on them. Never mind, like whether those resources get there, you're fine. Get back to work. Shut the fuck up and get ready to get sick. You know, and, and this is the kind of thing where you, it's so frustrating, right? Like, yes, it's, it's awful to compare COVID to the flu because it's wrong and not correct and minimizing. But to like sit there and be like one of these people who makes those arguments and goes, ah, suck it up. You're going to get ready to meet COVID maybe six to eight more times in your life. Well, it's, it's only be- a problem if you're not a healthy person. You're a healthy person, aren't you? Aren't mm-hmm. you one of the good ones? Don't worry mm-hmm. about the other ones. Uh, right. 50,000 people die in a typical flu season and I don't give a shit about them. So why should I give a shit about three, four times that number of people dying in the summer of COVID? Like, yeah, it's crazy. Sorry, that was really off the cuff. We can cut that. Out. No, I think it's really on point. And, and and this is like, that's why it's important to really understand like what exactly we mean when we say the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, because it's something that We've been talking about on this show, not just recently, but a very long time. I mean, I think the first time we actually mentioned this as an idea was in 2020 in an episode called Hygiene Theater of the Absurd. And it's it's not a new thing for people to be declaring the pandemic over, right? Like it's a steady drumbeat, actually, which has come from many angles, many ideologies, many levels of power, informal, formal, most recently from the president, et cetera. Like, This is exactly how the sociological production of the end of the pandemic works. It's built and built systematically, but not in a coordinated way, right? Like it's not a conspiracy. The pandemic is systemically built up bit by bit through a collective but disorganized group of human beings whose behavior is all pointing towards this kind of moment of us redefining essentially like what people are going to be forced to to do. This is not voluntary. And that's what's really important about understanding this as an idea is that the sociological end of the pandemic is not a voluntary thing. We're not consenting to it. Participation in the end of the pandemic is not voluntary, not at all. And so the idea that the pandemic is over is one that's actually, you know, not just about biological phenomena like sickness. It's it's economic, as we clearly know, you know, from the ongoing sickness, disability, suffering, lost wages, death. Um, you know, the the pandemic is not over, but the sociological end of the pandemic is so much about ending these kind of protections, but it's also so much about these economic frameworks and these frameworks about, you know, modes of production and, and work. And so the end of the pandemic is an idea, you know, actually like has very little to do with the actual disease and virus itself. It's a, it's a relation of production. And that's why it's been so easy for this idea to sort of coexist with the deaths existing. And I think part of the problem we have now is that a lot of the critique that has been going around of, of, of the Biden administration's position has been sort of hinged on this idea of well, don't they realize people are still dying? And, and, and obviously they absolutely do, right? Like there's no way to deny that, that that is obvious from the sort of internal machinations of like the federal government. But like what the disagreement is, like as I was saying about the kind of point of like, oh, well, this is just about whether or not it's an emergency still, right? Like the disagreement is more about what our obligation towards each other is, 
And as we've seen through like so many examples, either like the school debate, masking discourse, vaccines, remote events, remote work, pandemic fiscal supports, housing, sick leave, like rail workers strike being so centrally about basically people not wanting to face retaliation for taking unpaid sick time for COVID. You know, the end of the pandemic is ultimately a relation of production. And it's about, you know, the kind of idea of, you know, it's not just about society making the pandemic over through communication and law and policy. It's also that, you know, essentially independent of people's wills that they're going to be forced into these circumstances and that that is what's actually being produced, not just the idea that the pandemic is over, but the sort of physical and social and legal and structural circumstances that is being built and what, you know, is essentially kind of the forced conditions that is going to mitigate actually not just you know, like the labor relations of sick people and the elderly, but actually everyone's labor relations, everyone's relation to everyone in their life and their job and society, et cetera. So it's 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 this thing where it's like people talk about it as like, oh, well, you know, the whole point is sort of ending the uh, recognition of the understanding of the death. Right. But like beyond that, it's also about forcing those conditions of acceptance into a position where there's no way to refuse them if that makes sense. And I think it's like a really important thing to try and tease out because that's where so many of these justifications that we see pop up that seem like absurd or out of left field, like that's where they point us towards in terms of like how they help build this argument. So I'll only touch, I think, on, you know, a a few aspects of that regarding the, the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. But I do think that one really important part of it that you mentioned is this sort of overall marshalling not only knowledge production in general, but this idea of like a scientific end of the pandemic, um, which obviously, as we know, as we've talked about on the podcast plenty before, even the very idea of endemicity, for example, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a social construction. And that's one of the ways the sociological production of the end of the pandemic happens, right, is it's about this entirely, you know, completely contested definition of like, what are we <laughs> going to be made to put up with basically what are we what level of uh you know additional despair from this are we going to be sort of normalized to to bear and i think that for example in that uh barkin piece that i mentioned before it's no surprise that he leans into this too um for example he says uh quote the segment of the public health community and pundit class most enraged at biden ignores the obvious science behind COVID-19, <laughs> particularly the latest variant. Um, and then he repeats the like the fucking David Leonhardt line, basically, mitigations against the variant work less well than they would have in 2020, oh since God. the virus spreads far more easily than prior versions. Okay. Your level of vaccination does not matter either. And this is categorically untrue. How do these people who put, play smart men on TV think that they can get away with saying such ridiculously absurd shit? and still like think that they look smart easier to play a smart man on new york mag i I guess but like anyway, the the, um but and in the op-ed that i also mentioned the lena wen one for example she uh that says basically the same thing like biden's right to call the pandemic over she also says uh you know a pretty similar thing which is saying like the virus has evolved to be endemic. I think that's literally pre- pretty much what she says. Right. Concho. Um, and this is, you know, this is why I want to focus again on like all of this, all of this obviously is eminently contested and contestable, but we have so many, there are like coming from all around you, whether it's from patently unscientific minds like David Leonhardt or whatever. And the, <laughs> the exact rhetoric that Ross Barkin is basically just uncritically regurgitating straight from like, New York Times morning newsletter posts basically from like months ago to someone like Monica Gandhi, for example, who, you know, last week there was a big NPR piece that drew a lot of derision because uh, she was saying that according to this uh, figure that I think Abby actually mentioned earlier, uh, the infection fatality rate of COVID, according to that, like suddenly COVID is less deadly than the flu or about uh, about the same amount of deadly as the flu. And so we really shouldn't worry about it. Many experts say it's way too soon to declare COVID a threat on par with the flu, but some infectious disease experts are ready to go that far, like Dr. Monica Gandhi at the University of California, San Francisco. We have all been questioning, when does COVID look like influenza in terms of deaths? 
And yes, we are there. We are essentially at a low case fatality rate where COVID has reached influenza. So live your life in a way that you used to live with endemic seasonal flu. And so all of these things, it's like you'll find any justification reaching for justification, reaching for people who will do the knowledge production to say, here's a, you know, here's a fact and figure that tells you actually don't worry about it. See that, you know, see that figure that says like, you know, the 500 deaths a day or whatever. No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Look at the, look at the infection fatality rate. Mm -hmm. Well, because the argument that they are really trying to make, and I mean, this is so interesting because it's so like the gymnastics of making this argument are so wild, but they, you know, it's presented as if, as uh, I think Vinay Prasad tweeted, you know, it's just a numerical <laughs> fact that oh can God. be reported. But this has been sort of a political project around COVID almost from the get-go because mm -hmm. they're saying, no, 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 don't look at the absolute number. Don't look at, you know, the, the 500 deaths a day. Actually look at the infection fatality rate and, okay, so the infection fatality rate, I think I talked about this on the first ever uh, <laughs> appearance on death panel I did, which I think was like two, almost two years ago to the day, like full so wild. Circle. Yeah, well, time <laughs> is truly a flat circle. Uh, but, you know, if, if you will recall that John Ioannidis Cero study that mm -hmm. he conducted with uh, like undisclosed JetBlue funding very, very early on in the pandemic, those researchers, that team, and how that study was uptaken and used by people like the Great Barrington Declaration people and so on and so forth. And this is the one that said it's totally safe to fly. Yeah, of course. So the, the purpose of doing this sero survey of, of trying to look and see how many people had antibodies to COVID was to try and establish, you know, that a lot of people had already had COVID, that the denominator of the infection fatality rate was actually much, much larger than anyone thought. And therefore that the numerator, the absolute number of deaths, you know, in relative terms was not very high. So the two um, kind of uh, measures of how deadly uh, an infectious disease is in the population are the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate. Both of these are simple fractions, just one number over the other. The numerator or the top number in the in both fractions is the number of deaths, which, you know, as we know, can be miscounted, undercounted. But, you know, death is a fairly definitive endpoint. You know, that that's a, a, fair, a somewhat reliable number if, if death reporting is, is working as it should be. The denominators of these two fractions are different. So the case fatality rate takes the total number of deaths from, you know, whatever the disease is, let's say covid over the number of confirmed cases of COVID, which depending on how good testing is, depending on the rate of uh, asymptomatic versus symptomatic infections, the number of confirmed cases may or may not be a fairly accurate reflection of the total number of infections. Now, the infection fatality rate takes the, the total number of, of infections as the denominator. So it's the number of deaths from a certain cause over the total number of, of infections. Um, and the case fatality rate is usually higher than the infection fatality rate because some infections are not picked up by testing, you know, they're asymptomatic, whatever. Now we're in this very weird place because, you know, someone like Vinay Prasad is saying, well, the infection fatality rate, it's simply a numerical fact. But that's a fucking lie because, you know, for someone who demands exacting uh, evidence for for everything, it's very interesting because we can't calculate an infection fatality rate for the U.S. right now because we have not a clue how many mm -hmm. infections there are. We know right. that we have a very poor and very severely undercounted estimate of how many infections are be converted into confirmed cases, but we can't, you know, unless we had universal testing or really reliable sero screening. We could not know what the infection fatality rate in the United States is uh, at this time. Much I less think compare it to the flu. Much less is much it, less compared to the flu. Anything other than perhaps defunding testing and contact tracing infrastructure Completely. to have a reduction in that number. And I know there was like a there was a Financial Times article that was showing <laughs> you know that the infection fatality rate in the in the UK is is now less than that for the flu. It may be the case that the UK has much, much better 
testing infrastructure than than we do, and that is an accurate comparison, that's fine. You know, it may be possible that the spirit of what uh, Monica Gandhi was saying in that NPR interview is correct. You know, I think I think kind of what like she is getting at there is like, well, we definitely I think it's a, a fair assumption to say that there are a lot more COVID infections than flu infections right now, which would make the infection fatality rate for COVID. It would make that denominator of, of total infections much larger, probably than the denominator for flu. But, you know, there are also way fewer uh, flu deaths in the numerator. So it's, I think, basically impossible to compare without a reasonably accurate infection fatality rate estimate for COVID for the United States for this time period, which no one has, no one has offered because no one can, because we can't, we can't calculate it. And, and another, I don't know, another point that I really want to make, and in preparation for this episode, I feel like I was really plaguing the group chat with this idea. <laughs> um, but, uh, Infection fatality rate, it's not a static number, you know, it's population and time period specific. The infection fatality rate changes over time. I think it's accurate to say that the infection fatality rate for COVID um, has gone down over time. COVID was very highly fatal in earlier waves. But again, it's not really a win because if we're talking about the infection fatality rate in September 2022, you know, we're not talking about kind of a fundamental biological quantity or a fundamental property of, of right. Omicron. We're talking about the infection fatality rate conditional on survival to September 22. Or, you know, put another way, we can only calculate it among people that survived to September 22. So, right. you know, claims, I think they're pretty much unverifiable that uh, the IFR for COVID in the United States is now lower than for the flu, but it's just, it's interesting how that's, this gets trotted out in times when there is an interest in making the case that this is not a problem, right? So they want to, they want you to think, okay, yeah, 500 deaths a day sounds like a lot, but you know, there are so many infections because we haven't done anything to control COVID. So it's really like, pr it's probably just a tiny, tiny fraction, but <laughs> You know, why, why now? Like, my question kind of is like, why now? Like, what was the IFR, the infection fatality rate in, uh, say, December, January of 2021, 22? Like, why does no one ever talk about that? You know, like, why did infection fatality rate conversations not come up at that time? And like, you know, I just think it all it all has to do with this, like, instrumentalization of a number which, like all numbers, reflects a lot of non-numerical, non-objective, like non-biological, non-fixed aspects. But it's just the discursive power of, of numbers, again, you know, being used to try to browbeat people who are <laughs> thinking that maybe something is going wrong here and that, you know, the pandemic response hasn't been totally groovy the whole way through. And like, <laughs> you know, maybe it's like not super chill that like 400 to 500 people a day are now dying while masks are required almost nowhere and, you know, people have to be back um, at work. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch these IFR claims because it was evident from the, the, almost the very start of the pandemic, like April, May, 2020, that this was going to be a major way that people were going to try to make this argument that we're actually doing too much or taking COVID too seriously. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's bullshit. And there was something, <laughs> sorry, my last thing here, there was something in the NPR article, like whoever wrote that NPR article did like a piss poor job. Whoever that science reporter is like, <laughs> sorry, but like you blew it. First of all, they're conflating, you know, risk, pro like a probability as a risk and odds, which are not the same thing. That NPR article, the, the author wrote, if, uh, you know, this is true, the odds of a person dying if they get a COVID infection, what's called the case fatality rate, that's not an odds. Sorry, the case fatality rate is not an odds, and it's not the same as the infection fatality rate, would be about the same as the flu now, which is estimated to be around 0.1% or perhaps even lower. I'm sorry, based on, based on what? Like, you've just conflated several mathematical concepts, thrown in... Uh, <laughs> like a random number. I don't know if that came from the UK or what. And then been like, and maybe it's even lower than that. Okay, fine. But then they go on to say that, you know, the, the fatality rate is a 
Okay, they say the fatality rate is a ratio, the number of deaths over the number of confirmed cases. I think what he means is the infection fatality rate. And then goes on to say, so if there are more actual cases, that means that the likelihood of an individual dying is lower, which is wrong. <laughs> what? Right. Yeah. The infection I mean- and case fatality rates are population quantities that say nothing about an individual's risk of dying of COVID. And it is straight up lying. It is bullshit. Right. It's misinformation to say otherwise. I'm sorry. Well, and, like, and I think this is why, I, you know, this is why I raised the the thing of how this comparison or how this figure has been um, has become, you know, a focal point. As you said, it's been something that's returned over the course of the pandemic um, since really the beginning. But how it's become a focal point in the last week or two, specifically um, following this NPR article is because just fundamentally, regardless of all of the more in-depth technical things that you were just getting into there with all of these distinctions, even if this were true or whatever, simply doing this comparison, like the comparison part of it, the comparing it to the flu, for example, mm-hmm. I think means less than nothing, especially because regardless of whether it's like, okay, so here's the infection fatality rate, the like rate at which people are dying versus the amount of infections that I guess we're just presuming <laughs> at this point. Um, comparing those infection fatality rates between COVID and flu is fundamentally flawed in the first place because so many more COVID infections happen. So even if the infection fatality rate were lower or even a lot lower than the infection fatality rate for flu, it doesn't matter because so many more people are getting COVID. And so thus yeah, why you see low, so many more people dying of the, uh, of COVID than of the fucking flu. Even an like, IFR this doesn't make that, any sense. Even an IFR that looks low, that's a relative comparison that can still translate into a huge absolute number of deaths if, you know, all 300 some million people in the United States are getting COVID at the same time. Well, and, and like you know, multiple times a year. Right. And and the administration's own estimate for the fall was that they should, you know, we should be expecting 100 million infections. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's and that was fine. The, that was the estimate they gave at the beginning of summer. So. Sounds like the pandemic's over. No, and this is this is why I appreciate the way that you explained it, Abby. And and in some ways, like it can feel really frustrating to have to like lay out and refute these things because we all know that like what is actually true does not fucking matter to these people at all. That like the IFR argument is a kind of like it's a sciencey argument, right? It's it's using science as a medium to send a message, not using science to like say something about the world using data or observation, right? Like it, it's an totally. appropriation of of the vibe. And and <laughs> ultimately I feel like this IFR argument um to me it feels like part of this construction of the idea of there being a healthy body politic, right? And that that the vast majority of people do exist in this state of kind of health, which is, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, for example, like Vinay Prasad recently, one of the arguments he's been making is like, well, telling the argument he made on the bad faith podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, telling, you know, young, healthy people that they might need to be boosted or that they might be at risk of COVID, like that that's going to cause some kind of deep psychogenic harm that will harm them for the rest of their life because they will be, you know, knocked down from understanding that they are a strong, healthy person and they will think of themselves as weak and that that's ultimately, uh, you know, more psychologically harmful than merely just getting COVID a couple times a year for a year for the rest of your life. Right. Like this is something that he sort of just throws out there and has been using a lot recently like oh you know the idea itself of not thinking you're healthy is so harmful that that it it should be of primary importance here and when you kind of are laying out the IFR argument you know it ultimately it is the flip side of the coin of like deaths pulled from the future right like those deaths don't matter those deaths exist with this you know within this sort of constructed framework of both being like only vulnerable people and being so low being so compared to the flu and it's really you know it's about constructing the idea that the vast majority of people are healthy which is not true right like which we know in the united states is not a kind of thing that like you can count on nor is it an intrinsic quality that exists anywhere in the world it's always a socially and politically constructed situation yeah i want to i mean i could circle back to that 
podcast episode if we want. But I want to make kind of one final point that has to do with like the flu comparisons, which is that I cannot overstate how utterly irresponsible and bad science communication it is to be constantly, constantly, constantly using the flu as this benchmark for something that doesn't matter. Because in the event, and I would say the highly likely event, you know, in the next, in the coming decades of the advent of a highly pathogenic and highly virulent pandemic flu strain, which is very distinct from the seasonal flu and very likely to have incredibly, you know, high fatality rates, incredibly damaging effects, you know, to not show this kind of age gradient that COVID shows, like this whole rhetorical complex of, ah, we ignore the flu. No one cares about the flu. As soon as COVID is like the flu, that is the time when we know it's over. That is setting us up for massive, massive failure in, again, the highly likely event of a pandemic influenza strain emerging and and spreading throughout the world. And I don't know, people wonder why people wonder why there's there's a loss of of trust in, you know, scientists and institutions. And I think oftentimes people want to I'm seeing this a lot. They kind of want to mobilize and like blame the left and blame the covid hawks and blame everybody who is, you know, just really resistant to this process of normalization. But you know what I mean? Like if there's a pandemic flu, that's like fucking on you guys. <laughs> like sorry. Well, but it's and it's not just the but it's I think the point is it's not just the like the r- rhetorically uh you know, it there's some sort of uh effective, you know, on on future pandemic influenza response. It's that constantly emphasizing that the thing that we should learn from, you know, the past few years is that like we've done pretty well and that uh, we can you know, live with it. things things seem to we can live with it whatever is like you know just by any objective measure the early u.s response to the pandemic was in in, in part pathetic because of how weak mm-hmm. our uh support for a, a anything that looks like a public health system is in the united states mm-hmm. and you might imagine like what are the conditions under which the uh, sort of political institutions have a real motivation to reconsider whether or not that system itself is adequate. And it might be uh, one of those conditions might be that rhetorically, there's some convergence on the idea that we failed mm-hmm. uh, and that, the and, and mm-hmm. that like, you know, the, the, the Johns Hopkins like pandemic preparedness index was wrong. <laughs> the U S was not in fact, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this just sort of reflects um, as thing, I think a broader kind of, political uh learning which is on the one hand that um you know i think the real learning on the on the part of people like prasad or whatever is is that uh to get ahead in uh in business uh in this case is, is to just like you know the 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 incentive structure is like oh yeah let's let me not emphasize uh, that this was bad at all let me like just reemphasize that we did the best that we could Mm-hmm, totally. And I, I think part of the desire to like reduce COVID to the flu is because the flu rhetorically, like regardless of like how it exists as a biological phenomenon, is a very questionably valid reason for calling out of work, right? Like calling out of work because you have the flu is not something that, you know, most jobs are going to give you time off for or not mm-hmm. like get mad at you for doing. And I think ultimately, with the sort of signaling of like, oh, well, you know, we're we're always moving towards COVID being like the flu. It ultimately comes down to, at the end of the day, also like what are labor conditions going to be like? What are people going to be entitled to in terms of taking time for recovery, for convalescing, for experiencing illness? Because if we know anything about capitalism, we know that capitalism likes neat tidy illness narratives that it can kind of keep to one or two days, you know, no more than four days a year or something like that. And and that's, you know, part of that framework working means denying convalescence for illnesses like the flu, for illnesses like the common cold, denying, you know, anything that could sort of uh, extend that time period that someone might be out of a job. Well, and that's why I think the only sense in which COVID is like the flu or is becoming like the flu 
is actually that sociologically speaking, the flu is already something that we have normalized. The flu went through the process yeah, yeah. of normalization literally a century ago, uh, at, at least at least that since that pandemic flu, like literally there has been this century long process of complete sociological normalization of the flu. And frankly, both, I think uh, the idea that you could make the comparison saying, oh, well, flu is not really a big deal right? Flu kills like 50,000 people a year. I mean, the fact that you can make this comparison in the first place, I think, suggests some very fundamental things about our political economy of health and how we define and mobilize health in society or like the health of the human body in society. Because I think that, frankly, even looking at, for instance, all the people who called out the pandemic is over line, like the called out Biden for saying the pandemic is over, right? As a as a thing of like, look, you are leaving vulnerable people behind, right? You are saying to medically vulnerable people like, fuck you, go off and die. And they're right, right? That is what Biden was saying. Biden was saying, essentially, like to say the pandemic is over is to say, I think as Coletzo said in that uh, great uh, interview that you did with him be in the patron feed uh, that was released on Monday, um, you know, Coletzo said, something to the effect of essentially like that the monkeypox response specifically was go- going from the emergency phase to something that was just uh, going to be once again only a problem for or viewed as only a problem for uh poor and black people right right and i think that you know that statement equally holds true for what biden said it also equally holds true for i think all of this discourse around the pandemic right now, frankly, from even a lot of the different perspectives, because I think even the people who say like, oh, well, maybe we should do something specifically for the vulnerable people. And this Mm -hmm. is something that as we've talked about on the show before, we're trying to be more accountable about too. like the idea that is simply that the idea that this is simply a problem only for those who we think of categorically as vulnerable, as surplus already, as whatever is just fundamentally wrong like covid and all of these things are a problem for everybody this is a this is a you know population level threat Mm -hmm. still and you know on the one side it is not simply enough to say we need to take action specifically to protect the vulnerable nor is it obviously okay to say we don't have to take action because it's only the vulnerable who are vulnerable right right (laughs) right and and so, I mean, that's my basically final takeaway from all of this. Simply saying, you know, Joe Biden is wrong. The pandemic is not over is not enough. Simply saying we must do these things on behalf of the vulnerable as though we are not ourselves vulnerable is completely going to be insufficient and just going to get us right back exactly here every time. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to do anything to alleviate the harm of COVID, we absolutely cannot oversimplify how power operates. Like, I don't think that can be uh, stated enough. And maybe that's a good place to leave it for today. Abby, thank you for coming on for your first full panel episode. So excited to have you be full member of the crew. Hey, me too. Thank you. Hell yeah. And patrons, thank you for all of your support. We could not have added Abby and Jules without you. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show to get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become one at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
did you guys this won't be part of the show but like did you happen to watch the full 60 minutes thing or just the clip just the clip because i just have to say there's the funniest thing the 60 (laughs) minutes clip starts with that anchor whatever his name is the opening monologue says the following summer was going so well for the president the white house threw a party last week with a concert by james taylor (laughs) but tuesday as james taylor sang fire and rain it seemed like both descended on the president's party (laughs) i love the purple prose yeah that's i thought you guys would appreciate that (sighs) Yes. Gonna invoice you Jackson for psychic, Brown psychic damages, Arnie. Ugh. Anyway, so corny. My God. Jackson Brown saying lawyers in love. The lawyers were not, in fact, in love. Talking about things to come, sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. Um. Sweet dreams and flying machines Flying safely through the air 